Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. This is a podcast where we talk all things culture, leadership and teamwork across business and sport. To all our loyal listeners, the Culture of Things podcast will now have specific episodes produced for YouTube. To ensure you don't miss out on this exclusive YouTube content, head over to YouTube, click on the subscribe button, and hit the notification bell. Now, let's get into the episode. When Mark, our producer, and I were preparing for the interview, Mark came up with the title, One Mind, Many Matters. This sums up our next guest perfectly. Barnaby Howarth has one strong mind that has had to endure many matters of hardship. He's handled them with strength and resilience, and along the way, he's had a loyal support network to bring him back when that strength and resilience has waned. If you're watching on YouTube, I'd love you to watch the whole interview. I also understand you may want to check out a specific part. If that's the case, go to the chapters in the description below and choose the part you want to see. Barnaby has an amazing story. He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in his teens, signed by the Sydney Swans at 18, suffered a horrific brain injury which left him with a permanent disability, nursed his first wife through a terminal illness, became a globally recognised strength and resilience keynote speaker, hosts a very successful podcast called Everyday Greatness and is now remarried and is a proud husband and stepfather to his teenage daughter. As you'll learn during the interview, Barnaby is proud to be an everyday Joe Bag of Donuts. He's a real person planting seeds of small goodness and watching them grow into big greatness. If Barnaby doesn't inspire you to everyday greatness, nothing will. His one mind has overcome many matters. After the interview, I share my three key takeaways. Share your takeaways with me via email, or you can put them into the YouTube comments. I hope you enjoy the interview. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the Culture Things Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rogers, and this is episode 78. Today, I get to talk to a chap called Barnaby Howarth. Barnaby, how are you, mate? Magnificent. Thank you for having me, Brendan. Mate, a pleasure. I've been really looking forward to this conversation today. You and I haven't known each other directly. This is actually the first time we've met, but you're a, a family member of a very, very close friend of, of ours, Shay Wittig and, and Richard Cousins, I think, from memory. So, she's talked about you heaps of times. She's spoken you up a hell of a lot. So, please don't disappoint today, mate. Jeez, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I, I, if there's one person in the world I don't want to let down, it's Shay Wittig. <laughs> She's a cha- and Shay's also our copywriter for the show, so she'll do the the blogs and all that sort of stuff from this. So we've added a bit more pressure on her because she's like, gosh, she she cares about both of us so much. She wants to make sure she does a fantastic job for us. All right, good luck, Shay. I might just swear and stumble <laughs> over words and just make it challenging for you. Make it tough for a mate. Make it tough. Look, mate, we're gonna we're gonna dive in. We're really focused a bit today on sort of leading with strength and resilience. And there's been a number of things that have happened throughout your journey of life, and we're gonna unpack that a little bit and and sort of talk through that. So, mate. What I do want to ask you, first of all, before we go into some of that detail is you've got a fantastic podcast called uh, Everyday Greatness, and you, you mention this term all the time, a Joe bag of donuts. What is that? Well, I saw a lot of motivational speakers and used to watch you know, documentaries about Nelson Mandela and Michael Jordan and all the, the high-flying celebrity people. And I always thought I was missing something. I always thought if I wanted to be, be like them, I had to find some mystical X factor, some aggression, some strength, some resilience that nobody else had. But I've realised over my journey that all the strength I needed to get through my challenges was inside me the whole time. So I used to think it wasn't enough just being a regular Joe Bag of Donuts. But now I think every everyday Joe Bag of Donuts have everything they need inside them to do whatever they want to do in life. It's a great point. You are a pretty fantastic Joe Bag of Donuts, I have to say. So let's start unpacking sort of Barnes and his his Joe Bag of Donuts stuff. There's a number of events, as I alluded to, that have sort of shaped you to where you are today. How about let's just start from the I'm not going to go back to when you were born and stuff. Let's start as that sort of 16, 17 year old leading into your AFL career and, and the first year with the or a year with the Swans. In that sort of time frame, two, three years leading into that, what sort of preparations, what sort of mindset did you have as a healthy young man making it into the AFL scene? 
I had to go back to the Joe Bag of Donuts thing, but all I was doing was trying my hardest and trying to be proud of myself, whether I won, lost, or drew. And that's what I thought wasn't enough. I I was diagnosed with diabetes at 14, and I thought, well, that that's me done. I wanted to play AFL, but I thought I didn't have that mystical X factor that I needed. So I just kept on battling along as best I could, giving life the best crack I could. And I I, I wasn't, like, I wasn't not trying. I was working my bum off. I was trying really hard. I was giving everything I had. I was being respectful of the people around me and just trying to make people's lives around me happier. And I thought there's no way in hell that's going to be enough to play AFL footy. And then I was drafted when I was 18 to the Swans for one season on the supplementary list. And those doubts that I had where I needed were confirmed when I saw a 17-year-old Adam Goods at training his first year in the AFL, leaning over the fence, gasping for breath like he was running out of it. Face was bloodied and bruised after a really competitive drill and he was up against an old, seasoned, hardened veteran from the Swans and they both had to fight hell for leather for the footy to get it back to the coach and the veteran just took saw Goodsy as fresh meat so he just destroyed him. And Goodsy was leaning over the fence, gasping for air, looking like he'd just you know, been hit by a by a wrecking ball, and the coach blew his whistle and said, right, right, next drill, let's go, boys. Good, you just stood up, jogged off, took part of the next drill like everybody else. And I thought that is the X factor. That's what I'm missing. But I've, I've seen over, the time, over time, and actually I interviewed Adam on one of my episodes of Everyday Greatness and found that he doesn't have an X factor. He's probably the best AFL footballer I've ever seen, but he doesn't have anything different that anybody else doesn't. He's just a really good man. He's a really good respectful human being and he, he tried really hard he gave everything he had every time he came to training and he ended up winning two brown lows two premierships and australian of the year award so yeah that that uh that small stuff inside you when i was growing up that i thought wasn't enough is all a person needs barnes have you ever traced back and thought like what shaped that your belief that you needed this x factor you know that these people that aspired to greatness and achieve greatness always had this x factor I have thought back. I actually, I was with a speaker's bureau when my keynote speaking career just started. I was signed by a speaker's bureau and I was spreading all this stuff there, you know, proud of being an everyday Joe Bag of Donuts, try your hardest, be proud of yourself. And the owner of the bureau called me into her office and said, go through your speech with me. So I gave the 30-second elevator pitch and I said, basically, I tell audiences to try their hardest and be proud of themselves. And she just looked me dead in the eye and said, nah. It's not strong enough. And, and that's, when, that's when she asked me to go and trace back what I'd done and what flicked the switch to make me more driven and more determined and all that sort of stuff. But there was nothing there. I, I look back, I've been surrounded by really good people my entire life, like Shay, like my immediate family, and I haven't done anything spectacular or different to anybody else. I've just tried to get, it, tried to get things done. If I face challenges, like I was diagnosed with diabetes at 14, when I faced that challenge, I just thought, right, well, I want to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I was really enjoying the life I was living, so I just want to keep living it. So, yeah, tracing back, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do because there's just nothing there. It's just, you know, everyday stuff that you try and do. You try and make good habits along the way, make good decisions, and all of that small, fluffy, intangible stuff has been enough to get me where I am today. When you were 14... And that diagnosis happened with type 1 diabetes. Tell us what that was like. I really doubted that I had the strength I needed to get through it. I had these stars in my eyes. I wanted to be an AFL footballer. But I thought that diabetes meant I was going to have to wrap myself in cotton wool and stop playing at the level I'd been playing at. So I didn't do anything differently. I just kept on trying my hardest, was respectful of the people around me, both on my team and the opposition. But I thought this is all just a waste of time. I was... So at 14, you can see the kids that are going to excel. You can see how, how they're getting ahead. And I just kept on looking around me and all the people I was competing for spots with to get in the AFL seemed to be rushing past me. And they all seemed to have the thing I thought I was missing, more aggression, more ruthlessness, some mystical X factor. So when I was diagnosed with diabetes, I, I wasn't disappointed about diabetes, but I was disappointed because I was pretty certain I wasn't going to have the strength I needed to get through it and play AFL footy. Tell us about your mindset. That's, you know, a young teenager and 
hearing that diagnosis, which you've just explained, but the, I guess the journey of that mindset when you, from when you've first heard that diagnosis and starting to, you know, those things going through your head that you just shared, where did the shift start to say, well, you know, this is just something, you know, another barrier I've got in my life and I'm going to deal with it? I think my diagnosis at 14 was the start of creating a mindset. When I was 14, I didn't have a mindset. My parents and my immediate family always used to make sure you didn't get too down on things. So when I got diabetes, I just shrugged my shoulders and thought, oh, well, that sucks, but you know, don't eat too much sugar, have your insulin, exercise regularly, do what needs to be done, get ahead. And I, I had no idea if it was going to work. In fact, I was pretty sure it wasn't going to work. But, yeah, there was no mindset. I never looked at myself in the mirror and said, come on, you can do this. It was just, you know, day by day, if your sugars are high, you know, go for, go for a run. If they're low, have some sugar, get back on track. And it was just every single day doing the best you can with whatever's on your plate that day. Let's keep going through this journey of Barnes's life, mate, because there's been a few few other nasty turns as well. So you're 18, you've, you're getting a chance to potentially play you know, first grade AFL and you had 12 months there. Now, then something happened in 2005, I think it was. Can you tell us a bit more about that moment in your life? Yeah, sure. I'll lead up to that in a second. But after I was dropped by the Swans, after that one year, over the next weeks and months, I just couldn't shake the feeling that maybe I hadn't tried hard enough. I think I was a bit starstruck seeing Plugger Lockett and Paul Kelly and Paul Ruse and Mark Bays running around. I had posters of half of them on my, on my walls. So I moved to Victoria and I did a pre-season with the Melbourne Demons under Neil Danaher, wasn't picked up by Melbourne, signed a contract with Sandringham in the VFL, and I worked my bum off. I did everything I could possibly do all the extra training, all the extra skills, weights, running. I didn't drink too much. I ate right. But at the end of those two years, I hadn't even come close to attracting any attention from any AFL clubs. So I moved back to Sydney and rejoined my career for my local footy club, the Pennant Hills Demons. And when I was on 96 games for Pennant Hills, I was club captain and I was, and our first grade team were undefeated halfway through the year. I was bashed in an alcohol-fueled gang attack and had a stroke. So I was out having what I thought was a quiet drink with three mates of mine. Then on the way home, one of my mates didn't like the way a kid was looking at him when he walked out of a convenience store. So he went over and had an angry word and things got out of hand really quickly. My mate threw this kid on the ground and started kicking him in the head while he was lying on the road. I ran over and grabbed my mate, told him he was being a peanut and dragged him back to where our other two mates were. And the four of us started walking away. We only made it about 200 metres down the road, though. We heard a, heap of heap, heard a heap of angry shouting coming from behind us. We turned around to see this kids' group grown from five to about 20. Some of them were yelling abuse. Some of them had their shirts off, but they all looked like they just wanted to punch somebody, and it wasn't too long before they got their wish. Two of my mates did what we all should have done and ran, but myself and one other guy stayed behind and tried to talk the mob down. My mate was king hit from behind, and then while he was lying on the ground unconscious, some guys stood around him and started kicking him in the head. I ran over minutes after the fight, and my life carried on 100% normally for the next seven days. Played a game of footy that weekend, went back to work the following Monday, but the whole time I was running around telling people how lucky we'd been. This mob didn't have weapons. My basilar artery in my brainstem had been torn, which I've later discovered is a pretty crucial artery. But because I had no idea about the tear, or sorry, the, when, when you tear an artery in your brain, it becomes like an old garden hose in the heap of dried gunk on the inside in the form of clotted blood. But because I had no idea about any of the dramas, I went back to footy training the next Thursday and took part as normally as I would have before the fight. Somewhere during training, apparently I got a knock from one of my teammates, which dislodged a bit of that gunk and it floated up another artery in my brainstem to a part where it narrowed, interrupting the blood flow going into the brain, which caused the stroke. And that's when, that's when things got really dramatic. My parents were told they might have to turn off my life support. My family and friends were told to come and say goodbye, and they were all told that if I did survive, I'd probably be a vegetable. Had I known how dire things got while I was out, I would have thought, thought of something a lot more profound to say when I woke up. When I opened my eyes, I saw that I was lying in a hospital bed, surrounded by my friends and family. Some of them had come from interstate. My little brother had flown all the way back from Scotland. Some of them were crying. And someone explained to me that I had a stroke on the Thursday I'd been unconscious all weekend, and then it was now Monday. My first thought was, bugger, 
I missed a game of footy on the weekend. <laughs> Pennant Hills were coming up against our arch nemesis, the North Shore Bombers. So I looked around everybody in this hospital, in this hospital room, took a deep, dramatic breath. Some of them elbowed each other and said, shh, he's about to talk. And I said, did we beat North Shore? <laughs> Turns out we lost. I was spewing. Oh, you'd lost, did you? Yeah. Oh. First loss of the season for our first grade team. Oh, mate. Very disappointing day. They obviously needed you, buddy. <laughs> so that seven seven days after the the attack and, and you were just, you were really helping a mate who was, as you said, being a bit of a peanut, was there any, no effects at all just during that seven days? You just had absolutely no idea that there was something happening. The friend of mine that got king hit and was kicked in the head while he was unconscious, he went to hospital that night because he was bloodied and bruised and you know looked a bit worse for wear. So I just I woke up, went back to my other mate's place and slept the night, went back to work and everything was fine. And yeah, I had no no other effects over that seven days. Played a game of footy on the Saturday, went back to training on the Tuesday. It was just like steady as she goes. Thinking back about that moment, I'm sure you have numerous times. Are there any regrets? Not at all. I if I was put in the same spot and my friend was in trouble in a fight, I'd do what needed to be done to go and try and help him out. I think my story is one of physical recovery in the rehabilitation and, you know, the coming back from not being able to stand still. But my friend who started the fight, he struggled mentally with the whole process. He came into my hospital room over those four days I was unconscious and my family all gave him death stares because the doctors were saying there wasn't a huge chance I'd survive. So he was carrying the weight of possibly killing someone. So he's, he struggled so much that he moved from Australia to Canada where he's now started a family and he's living a happy life. But he really had demons that I didn't have. I just woke up every day and was like, right, well, I can't stand still because I keep falling over. So I've got to do more balance on my left leg. Whereas he had the, had the like you're saying, the, the demons, the things you couldn't, that just didn't shut up when you're brushing your teeth. So I'm not trying to say that I got away lightly, but I think out of the two of us, I think his struggles would have been harder than mine. But he actually, so he and I, I, I never I never hated him. We're no longer like really good mates. We're acquaintances. But I've been in touch with him on and off over the years and I wrote my second book. Uh, well, I, I had a, a biography written and I got in touch with him and asked him to write a forward. And he wrote a forward. He's, he's a writer. He knows how to put a sentence together. And I think that for me was really nice. I, I get a lot of meaning out of reading the forward. But I think for him it was like a cleansing and a real line in the sand and a, an ability for him to move on with his own life and drop those demons. So, yeah, it, was a, it could have been a really nasty time, but I've got other mates who have done stupid things on, on nights out and no one's had a stroke from them. So, you know, I can't get heavy on this guy because of what happened to me. Like I've seen worse things happen and everyone get away with it. So it sucked, but it is what it is. Yeah, it's one of those things in life, isn't it? We've all done some stupid things from time to time. Some of us, I guess, have more consequences as a result of some of the stupidity than others, I think. Can you just talk us through, Barnes, a little bit with the physical challenges that went with recovering from that stroke in 2005? So it was pretty daunting. I'd, it was a really long, challenging road ahead, and I still had that mindset where I'd didn't think I had the strength I needed to get through it. I thought I needed to find something extra. So one of my early exercises was that I had to pick up a paperclip out of a bowl, move it over into a into a teacup with my left hand, my affected hand. And it was so frustrating. It was just so boring and monotonous. And I thought, there's no way in hell this is going to help me. Like picking up a paperclip and moving it from one side to the other is such a meaningless, pointless exercise but my therapist said, this is the stuff you just have to do committedly, daily, and just do it over and over again. And I always thought it was just a waste of time, but that's the stuff that got me to where I am today. So one of my other early exercises, I essentially when you have a stroke, all the signals from your brain to the left side of or your affected side of your body are wiped clean. So you have to relearn how to use those muscles again. So my left leg was just had no strength in it, literally not, not, a, not an ounce of strength. So one of my early exercises was to lie in my hospital bed and clench my bum cheeks together. <laughs> I, always, I always thought, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Clenching your bum cheeks together is not going to make anything happen. 
But I went from a point where when I was in hospital, I literally couldn't stand still in one position because my left leg had no strength to hold me up. So I just kept on falling over every time I tried to stand up. But after years and years of those really small, tedious exercises, like the moving paper clips and clenching your bum cheeks together, eventually the accumulation of all of those small exercises gets you to a point where you can be proud of the life you're living. And that's where I am today. So I guess two things, you'd be very pleased never to see another paperclip and when you're standing in line for something, are you doing your butt cheek exercises nowadays? Uh, no, the butt cheek exercises are a thing of the past. <laughs> I actually used to, I've got a, a friend of mine, used to be quite fascinated and interested in my stroke rehabilitation story and I used to use my left hand for a lot of different things that, you know, I, I had this, I've got an over, like an overly strong grip in my left hand so I used to test it by eating cookies and chips and things. And if I did something that I thought was cool, I'd text my friend and say, I've got a left-hand achievement report. I just ate a cookie from Subway in my left hand. <laughs> and she never quite got the point of why I was so pleased about it. But it was just, it's just nice to appreciate those small things. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess if you've... You know, if you don't have the understanding of what you've been through, it is hard to appreciate those. But when you understand your story and where you've come from to where you are now, that's a massive achievement. Yeah, it's. I quite often look back over my story, and when I when I was fascinated with the Mandelas and the Jordans, there's always one moment you can always see the moment where they become something magical. And I always was waiting for that moment. I used to lie in my hospital bed. Couldn't stand up, you know. Couldn't I was I knocked my wee bottle off my table one time. It's a really embarrassing, demeaning time in my life, and I always just sat there waiting for that voice of God, the lightning bolt, the one thing that was going to make me go from a zero to a hero. And it never came, and I was always really frustrated with it. But looking back on it from where I am today, I think there is there is no lightning bolt. There is no voice of God. It's just doing the same stuff over and over. And the accumulation of all the small efforts in any field of life, whether it's physical physical rehab, whether it's just trying to be fitter and stronger, whether it's trying to be a nicer person, you can't just go out one day and be nice to five different people and you know donate to a charity and then call yourself a nice person. It's back to back, day after day, one foot in front of the other. It's all that sort of stuff. Absolutely, mate. What of, again, to give our listeners a sense of some of the day-to-day challenges you have as a result of the stroke, and yes, you've gone through rehabilitation, recovery, but what are some of those day-to-day challenges that you will live with forever? Forever. So in saying all of what I said about the accumulation of small things, that works against me as well. So over the years, because my left side has been weak or uncoordinated, I have favoured my right side too much. So when I'm like sitting sitting right now talking to you in this podcast, I'm actually leaning more to the right than I should be. So my my right leg is getting sore knees and hips and lower back, and my left leg is getting less and less coordinated. Just because there's that my physio used to say you need balance everywhere. So if you use your right hand for something, use your left hand for the next time, and that's become unbalanced just because the left side wasn't coping properly. So that's that's one pretty big thing. Um, my short-term memory is non-existent. I'm like Dory from Finding Nemo or Two Second Tom from Fifty First Dates. <laughs> I quite often I've lost count of the amount of times where I've been holding something. So I say my phone in my left hand, and then I look around and go, "Oh, where did I put my phone?" I, I do that more times than I would like to think. People might tell me their name, and I'll say, "Oh, g'day, g'day, John. How are you going?" And you know, think he's a nice guy. Turn around, and speak to someone else. Turn back around and go. Sorry, mate, I forgot your name again. So that might be old age catching up as well. But yeah, that short-term memory is a bit of a drama. There's quite a few small, little frustrating things, but the main things are still functional. Like I might not remember John's name, but if he says, you know, I, my grandfather fought in World War II and um, was in Timor and saved a couple of people, I'd remember that story and I'd be able to have a conversation, like a meaningful conversation with people which I find is really, that's actually helped me through my challenges, just being able to connect with people. So that short-term memory thing is annoying, but it's not you know, ruining my life. Barnes, was there anybody in particular that, I guess, gave you that level of support that you needed at this crucial time in your life, in this recovery place? Did you ask that question so I'd say Shay Wittig? 
No, I didn't. I'm very open-minded <laughs> uh, about these things. <laughs> she was living in a different state. <laughs> Do you know what? Before, before you answer that question, though, is so much of what you're saying during this interview, I've known Shay, Richie, and, and the guys for a long time now, and this, you, know, you guys are such a great bonded family unit extended, and I, I remember – these sort of conversations of Shady sharing these, you know, some of this stuff that you're talking about, about, you know, the accident and all this sort of stuff and the bad state you're in. And it's only just actually starting to come back to me now. It's like, wow, we first met each other, myself and Shay and the guys in, 2000, in 1998, and we've been friends ever since. And they're godparents to our, our, both our children and, you know, unbelievably fantastic human beings. So, yeah, there's, there's so much coming back in what you're saying and just sort of these memories of, yeah, the challenges and the agony that I know Shay and, and the guys were going through as you were going through. But anyway, sorry, I just it just came back to me, mate. I needed to share that. So, this is a real moment for me, actually. <laughs> oh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm, it's a great I'm moment. starting to bring up some dark, dark memories. No, it's a, it's a um, great moment, But to answer your question, it hasn't really been one person in particular. There's been several communities. One has been my family. My immediate family has been ridiculously supportive and, and helped me get through my situation. My extended family, like Shay and my cousins interstate, have just been, have always been there. Like if, if I was struggling, I'd pick up the phone and ring someone. And vice versa, if I knew someone else was struggling, I'd pick up the phone and ring them. My old teammates from the Sydney Swans came into my hospital room in August 2005. They came in just to pat me on the back and say good day and make sure everything was okay. They all left and then in September 2005, the Swans won their first premiership in 72 years. So there was then my local footy club, the Pennant Hills Demons. All of these communities are just full of really good people just giving life the best crack they can. But like I was saying about the accumulation of physical rehab, the accumulation of small goodness in communities builds strength. So most of my strength, I don't consider myself to be a particularly strong person, but to be able to get through these things, I guess I do have a little bit somewhere. But all that strength comes from the good people around me. And I've got so many good people around me from all these different communities that I can't help but be positive about things. So, yeah, it's, it's a long answer to your question, but no, there's not one person that stands out. There is one story. So when I was playing footy before the stroke, my local footy club, Pennant Hills, we made the preliminary final and were red-hot favourites to win the, win the competition. We were meant to win that game, go to the grand final and destroy everybody. But we lost the preliminary final against Balmain. And I came off the ground, I think I was 17 years old, bawling my eyes out. My mum, I'll never forget it. My mum came over to me, confused as hell. She looked at me in the eye. She goes, what are you doing? I said, we, we worked hard all season for this and we lost. She said, it's a game of football. <laughs> Put a Band-Aid on, you'd be right. And I, I always thought that was really, really insensitive at the time. I thought, that's such a hard call. But looking back on it, I realised that good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. But there comes a time when you just have to get over it and go and play in the puddles. Our interview will continue after this. An expression of gratitude or reciprocity, no matter how large or small, is an important part of a healthy culture and relationships. Our friends at Jangler have a great app that allows you to send a gift card with either a personal video, voice message, or funny gif. You can send it right away or schedule to send on the perfect day and time. So it can be something you set and forget. It's perfect for clients, employees, birthdays, and any celebration where you can't be there in person. It's quick, easy to send, and you can spend instantly in-store or online when you receive a card. Check it out at www.jangler.com.au. That's www.jangler.com.au. It's interesting how you said good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. That's something that's been going through my mind in preparation for this. And I sense sometimes that they're, they're just in, in my world, there seems to be bad things happening to good people more often than good things happening to bad people. Have you ever thought about that? I guess that saying and, and maybe why life throws these good people some bad situations from time to time? I've thought about it a lot. 
because I I like to think I make good decisions and I'm not a bad person, but all these bad things happened. So if you go by the bad things happen to good bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, then I'm a terrible person. But I I think there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. I think that uh, rain falls on the just and the unjust alike is about as much sense as I can make of it. If I tried to go and work out why I got diabetes and a stroke, then I would just go insane with trying to work out the fairness in life. But unfortunately, I don't think there is fairness in life. I think you do the best you can. And all of the successful people I've spoken to, like those Adam Goodses, they haven't got bogged down when things don't go their way. They don't go in a corner and ball up and cry and stop trying. The successful people, when things don't go their way, they just keep trying. And if it doesn't go their way again, they keep trying. It's just an accumulation of doing the right thing every time. Trying to make sense of it just slows you down. So you just got to get back on the horse and keep trying your hardest. And you, you may get, life is so big, you'll never get your entire life being bad things. You'll have sections where more bad things than good happen. Then you'll get other sections where more good things than bad will happen. But there's no explanation for it all. You just keep planting seeds of small goodness as much as you can, and eventually they'll all flower. Might not be next week, next month, next year. But the more you put in, the more you'll get out down the track. Yeah, absolutely well said, mate. Let's keep moving forward on the Barnes's timeline of life. Move forward. I, I can't remember exactly how many years, but your first wife. Tell us a little bit, bit about the situation then. You, you're nursing your first wife through some you know, a pretty, well, terminal illness. So I met Angela Gerges in 2013, and our lives together were such a fairy tale, I wouldn't have believed it was true if I hadn't lived it myself. So we met in July 2013, then Angela was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer in August 2014. We were engaged the following month. I was baptised in Angela's church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, in September, and then we were married that November. After we were married, we went on 19 legs of our honeymoon, the last of which we got back from less than a week before she joined her father in heaven. It was a, it was a really trying, difficult time watching someone you love so passionately struggling so much. We, you know, we got to the point where we had to get those big uh, recliner chairs in our apartment and friends who were policemen would come and help just to, to help move my wife around because it was getting quite difficult. So it's quite sad and tough seeing all that, all that happening. But the one glimmer of, I, f- I feel bad calling it happiness, but my wife, when she was in palliative care, was lying on, on her bed surrounded by friends and family and everybody was just talking and laughing and having a really nice time. And then my mother came and grabbed my arm. She said, I think she's gone, Barnes. And sure enough, that was the moment that Angela passed away. But the happiness in the room before that, I think, was, um, I said there's no rhyme or reason to things, but I think Angela put so much goodness into the world over her entire life that this was coming to back to coming to pay her back. What did you take from your short time together? What's this thing that you've taken through in the, the next stages of your life? There's quite a few different things. One of them is the good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. Angela is one of the, the great people on earth. She gave more than most people I know would have. And for her to, to suffer this fate, there was that fairness question again. Was it fair? And no, it was totally bloody unfair. But Angela's cancer story was a smaller story than her life story. Angela had a lot of frustration and angst and things that weren't making her happy. But the longer we went on over that 12 months, well, over those years of knowing each other, the more those things started turning around. And I think that day when she passed away, she was in a good place, in a happy place. So, yeah, for me, it was just confirmation that you put enough good things in, you'll get enough good things out. Might be a really shitty time, but eventually it'll happen for you. What was that next 12 months so like for you after that moment? Really difficult. I was, was I, my mid-30s. So there was the talk, there was the thoughts of moving on, but then thinking, well, maybe that's disrespectful, trying to get my life in order with houses and you know, good solid foundations under my feet. It was really difficult, but then 
just being out with some being without someone that just made your life happier was really difficult. So it was it was quite an emotional journey and it was a really difficult one to, to come to terms with. But like everything else, I just thought, well, you gotta keep putting good things in. I, I had no idea. I was so this was my twelve months after I lost Angela was like when I'd got diabetes. I had no idea what the, the future was looking like. Had no idea what was down the track, but you know, I, I did know that if I sat in a corner and cried and didn't try and live a, a happy life, then I wasn't going to get happiness for myself in the future. When did you feel like you started to move forward and I guess restart, live your life and start to look forward to the future? Because you've got a fantastic future that you're living. Yeah, I do have a fantastic future. And this is where my short-term memory problems come, come to play. <laughs> I couldn't tell you the exact moment. And I don't in all honesty, I don't think there was a moment or a time. It just gradually, you know, gradually things look a bit more hopeful for you in the future. So I had real issues thinking about meeting somebody else after I'd lost Angela because of the guilt. But those feelings of guilt eventually subside. And it was funny, you, you, you do spend, a f- I did spend a fair bit of time consciously looking for someone and I just, I'd never felt further away from finding someone. Then other times you just stop worrying. You're just like, oh, well, I'll, you know, I might not find anyone, but she'll be right. I'll, I'll move on. And that's when I met my second wife, which was one of the most glorious meetings I've, I've ever witnessed. So my current wife, Julia, and I have a mutual friend and I was at the mutual friend's house one day for a barbecue and she said, oh, I've got someone I want you to meet. So she gave me Julia's Facebook details and said, get in touch on Facebook, this is how she rolls. <laughs> so got in touch through Facebook and we chatted and we, you know, we seemed to get along and have some things in common with how important family was and how important you know, treating other people kindly was. And we had organised to go out for dinner at a pub in Epping in Sydney and <laughs> I got there early-ish and I was sitting there waiting and quite excited and Julia was driving from work and got stuck in a heap of traffic. She's since told me that she she was th- three seconds away from just turning around and giving up and te- texting me and saying, I can't make it, I'm sorry. So <laughs> anyway, she did come up and I never really found a connection with someone that was so real. We have a, a commitment to each other that we just tell it as it is. If, you know, if we don't like something, we'll tell the other person. If it's awesome, we'll tell them. But it's a real – can I swear on this podcast? Mate, you can do absolutely anything. It's a real – oh, cool, I'll take my pants off. We've um, had people a- swear – well, we've had people swear. We've had people take their shirts off. We've had all sorts of stuff <laughs> happening. <laughs> I like this thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a real – is one of those people that proves that you put good things in, good things happen. So she was single because she was divorced from the father of her 14-year-old daughter, now 14-year-old daughter, um, who still lives in Queensland. And she had come to Sydney. There were some issues separating separating the house and that sort of thing. Turned a bit ugly. So she came down here and we had a really deep conversation, just a really nice conversation about, you know, the bad stuff that happened, but what you learned and why, you know, you're still moving forward and, we just seem to be really on the same page. So we finished the first date and she's going to hate me for telling you this story, but we went back, I walked her back to her car and went to give her a kiss goodnight and she just sat there. It was like kissing a brick wall. <laughs> I got nothing in return. But anyway, persisted and... You've actually kissed a brick wall before so you know the feeling? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, the next, the next date was with her daughter who was then 12, I think. Because she said, look, her and her daughter are peas in a pod. She said, if you don't get along with my daughter, then we're better off calling this quits now rather than, you know, doing six months' worth of work and it not being right. So I went out with, with her daughter, sat down in, in the booth at the pub we're at, and her daughter, who just got from just come from school, got out a notebook. She's like, right, I've got some questions for you. Like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> she goes, what's your favourite colour? What sort of pets do you want? <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so her and I, Imogen, her name is, and I have a really good relationship, a bit like my, a bit like Julia and I. It's just a real no bullshit one. If I say I'm going to be somewhere, I'll move heaven and earth to be there. If I can't make it, I won't promise that I will and then just not turn up. If I can't make it, I'll just say, sorry, you're on your own. 
but it's it's a household built on honesty. So sometimes that honesty is not all that uh, savoury, but <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a really good foundation. And that foundation. So how does Julia and Imogen fill Barnes's cup? They give me everything I need. They so Julia works at a special school as a teacher's aide. So she's got a lot of experience in dealing with children with challenges. So that gives me what I need in that both Julia and Imogen give me the help I need with diabetes and stroke-related issues without being patronising and, you know, patting on the back and saying they're there, like the really demeaning stuff. So Julia and Imogen are probably a bit more forthright, a bit more honest than I am, and I think I needed a bit of a, you know, a, a stiffening up, up my spine. So they give me that and I give them a bit of softness so it sort of works perfectly both ways. One of my favourite parts of my life these days is just sitting out on our front porch or our back patio with Julia, Imogen and our dog Walter just shooting the breeze. Anne Marston, who's a resilience researcher and author, said resilience comes from ordinary magic and that's what this place is. I can't sit here and tell you one thing we've done that's been incredible and magical and changed our lives. Just every day we have nice conversations, you know, we help each other out where we can. Tomorrow we're taking Imogen out to her netball game after we go to Julia's niece's sixth birthday party. So real ordinary stuff, but I I find it just incredibly magic. Yeah, absolutely magical moments. How do you see yourself, Barnes? Do you see yourself as Barnaby with a disability, a man with a disability? Or do you see yourself as just Barnaby, a man? With a disability, but not a, not a, oh, get my violin out, poor me, you know, give me money, help me, you know, support me. I do have a disability. I was on disability support pension for a while. Technically, if you looked up in the dictionary, have a disability, but I don't wallow and mope and, you know, ask people to help me out because I have a disability. So yes, I, I'm Barnaby with a disability, but I don't take the piss out of it. Like I, that's the cards I've been dealt and I'll play them as best I can. So tell us a bit about this, can I say respectfully, normal life that you're living. What's this speaking career you've got? Yeah, you can call it normal by, by all means. Um, <laughs> so I... I would actually say it's abnormal because you're aspiring more than others. Oh, stop it. Um, <laughs> so when I got back on my feet after the stroke, I'd put a lot of energy and effort and time into physical rehab. So I was, you know, I was riding bikes and jogging and, you know, going for long walks and swimming. And physically I was better than I thought I would have been after all the accumulation of those small exercises that I thought were a waste of time. But I got to a point where I thought I might, be, I might get back to being a 100% physically perfect specimen, but if I haven't got a job, what's the point of being physically fine? So I started applying for Oh, sorry, I'd finished a journalism diploma at university just after finishing this, uh, just after getting back on my feet after the stroke. So with that diploma, I went and applied for jobs at a few different places and got an interview at the ABC to be a journalist. So the state editor of news at the time called me into the office, did all the you know the, the quizzes and the all the application stuff, and he called me into his office afterwards and said, "Pass mark on this quiz." It was just a current affairs quiz, pretty basic stuff. He said, pass mark is 70%, you got 40%, I can't give you a job. So I went home with my tail between my legs, thinking I was going to have to go on stock shelves at my local supermarket. But then the same guy, the state editor of news, rang me the next day and said, we've got a job in autocue, do you want that? Autocue is the teleprompter that scrolls the words that presenters read. And I thought, yeah, that'd be awesome, thinking I'd get in there on the bottom rung of the ladder and then climb the ladder and become an, an international journalist sitting in the corner office on the high salary. But when I was at the ABC, I applied for a few jobs internally trying to climb that ladder, but I really struggled trying to convince total strangers how much value I could bring to a role when I didn't really know in out, but it was just a really hard thing to do. So I thought, well, finding a job, an old typical job with an employer is going to be a difficult thing to do. So I started a a small business as a keynote speaker talking about resilience and talking about all that, the small goodness you put back into the world, bringing you the strength and the need to get through your challenges. So I started at same sort of thing. I was, I was just uh, 
just a hope that it turned out successfully. It was about 10 years ago. And initially I was getting a few, I was getting quite a a few jobs, but it was mostly for rotary and sports clubs and voluntary stuff. But eventually it started to be seen as a point of difference. So where most speakers were out there trying to tell people to do their best and wake up earlier and work harder, I was just saying, look, do your best, be proud of yourself. And if it doesn't happen, then keep trying and eventually it will. So I kept on going and I've since given speeches in San Diego, California, Calgary, Auckland and all around Australia and on two cruise ships. So it's it's really caught fire, with, again, with the help of some really good people and good technical operators, um, a digital marketing group called FASA Digital and a media production and streaming company called Look Studio Australia. So, yeah, it's just it's taken off and I'm... I'm really stoked, mate. I just, I, the happiest thing about my speaking career is that I haven't had to sell out and change my message to sell a particular product. I just get up and tell people my story. If you like it, take it. If you don't, leave it. What's the buzz you get from speaking? The buzz comes from the, reac- the reaction from audiences. I was doing some speeches for a group called Why Lead, and they held things called Altitude Days for year nine groups. And I gave a speech to a group in Adelaide a few years ago. And a young girl came up to me afterwards. She just looked at me really confused. She said, are you serious? And I, I said, uh, about what? She said, do you mean you don't have to win everything? You can just try your hardest and that's okay. And I said, well, that's all I've done and it's worked out for me, so yes. And I think that's – it was kind of unfortunate, I thought, in my eyes that you know, young, young people in Australia are told that if you don't win, you're not, you're not worthy and – it's disappointing if you don't win. I think that try hard, try your hardest, be proud of yourself has been lost a bit. And I think it's probably, it's probably something that's, that's needed in today's society where everyone's just stooping to lower and lower lengths, lengths to get ahead and they've just stopped the, well, I'll just give it, give it the best crack I can. If it works, cool. If it doesn't, I've tried my hardest. I can put my shoulders up, lift my head up and push my shoulders back and be proud of myself. Can you think of that most... I guess, satisfying, exciting moment that you've had in your speaking career so far and why that was so? I can tell you exactly. I, I was in Adelaide again, actually for the same group, the Y Lead group, and after I'd finished and I got down, a, a, an ex-teacher came over to me, an old guy, and he was crying. And I said, oh, sorry, did, did you hate it? Was it that bad? He said, no. I'd, he said, I've been trying to tell kids my whole life as a teacher, I've been trying to pass that message on to kids my whole life and it just doesn't seem to sink in. But hearing you give it made it feel like the kids understood it. That's enough for me. And that was exactly, that was that moment for me. If I hit that one person that understands it, then I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, that must have been a super powerful moment. Mate, I just want to, I guess, maybe digress a little bit in that one thing that I certainly couldn't find in the research about you, but our friend Shady I asked her some questions about you. Who's, what's, who's this guy, Barnes? You lost a finger. You made a choice to lose a finger. Tell us a bit more about that situation, what was involved and in, in this decision that you made. Why? Yeah, it's been an interesting decision. Um, actually, funnily enough, I just saw my GP who I saw when I was talking about maybe getting it cut off. He said, no, I wouldn't do it. And that was about eight years ago. So I went back and showed him. He's like, oh, no wonder you've got problems. <laughs> So he's not kept it on ice for eight years, has he? <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> I dislocated my my left ring finger while I was coaching an under eighteen football team at Pennant Hills, and I joined in training one night, and my fingers didn't open fast enough to catch the ball, so it hit me on the top of that finger and dislocated it. But because of the brain signal problems, because of the stroke, my hand wasn't closing properly, so that finger would just stay out. So when I was trying to get things out of my pocket and like functionally, that's a really awkward thing to have happening. So I made the decision. I saw my GP and asked some professional opinions, ignore them all, went, to, went down to the hospital and met this guy. He was, he, was a, he was a surgeon, but I'd never met him before. And I just walked in and I said, this finger's not very good. Can you chop it off for me? And he, he said, look, <laughs> normally we don't just chop limbs off people, chop anything off people if they just ask for it. But tell me your story. So I told him about the stroke and the dislocation and all the dramas. And he's like, you know what? That's probably not a bad request. I'll, I'll, I'll chop it off for you. So I went to hospital 
and I was lying on my hospital bed with the um, the gas coming in my mask, and the surgeon came in. And I said, "What do you use to chop this off?" He held up this pair of garden shears, like really sharp garden shears, and he goes, "I use these." I was like, "Oh, cool!" <laughs> passed oh, out. My goodness. And then, so my arm was in a sling. Well, I tried to fix the dislocation first before chopping it off. I had a pin put in and had a splint, but because my arm was in a sling for so long, part of stroke recovery is that you have to keep that signal active. So from my brain to my arm, the signal had gone dormant and there was nothing happening at all. So when I pulled my arm out of the sling, I had a cerebral tremor, which is basically a shaking left hand. So I can't actually hold things steady anymore. Yeah, that's not because of the amputation per se. It's more because of the brain signal issue. But, yeah, it's been a been a big issue. But I think when my GP the other day was telling me he thought it was a silly idea to do it, I just think back if, if I hadn't done it, walking around with a finger that just wouldn't bend would have been, I reckon, would have been 15 times worse than having no finger at all. That's amazing, mate. Is that a story you bring into your keynotes? Every now and then. It's more a story I tell my niece tell her that I lost it when I was putting my nose. (laughs) (laughs) What's her reaction? (laughs) I keep pumping it up. (laughs) That definitely sounds like a dad joke, that one. (laughs) Yeah. What sort of reaction do you get from people when you're on stage and you're you're bringing that part of the story into the keynote? What what do you notice? Uh, Disbelief, mostly. um, So I think it sounds like a pretty, pretty big reaction to a small problem. Like my finger being dislocated, a finger being dislocated isn't that big a problem, but, you know, the fact that it wasn't closing properly and that it had what was called a shotgun snapping closing mechanism, so it did eventually close, but it wouldn't smoothly go in like that. It snapped closed. So most people think of a dislocated finger as being not that big a deal. You just, you know, put a pin in it and put in a sling and you're right. But getting it chopped off seems a bit extreme. So most people in the audience think of what they would do if their finger was dislocated. It was a very different scenario with my finger. So, yeah, it's mostly just disbelief. There's a little bit of horror but more interest, more people just want to see it. And it was funny when I – so when I when I married Angela, that's it's on my ring finger. And when I married Angela, I turned around and showed the crowd my ring with my on my stump. They all laughed. <laughs> I turned back around and the priest got in my ear and he said, this is serious. it's not his day it's your day (laughs) oh wow that decision to me shouts out of you're a man of logic as opposed to a man of feeling is that right yeah a little bit i yeah i i guess so i i didn't think too far ahead about the repercussions and the you know how i was going to feel and what people might think which is well my finger's not working it's actually a hindrance rather than a help so chop the bloody thing off it's a way of thinking that kind of gets you into trouble every now and then, but I think mostly gets you through. You do some pretty stupid things. There was a time, again, when I was giving a speech in Adelaide that you just, I, quite often I just forget about my physical limitations and I gave a speech up on a stage at a school and then we did some Q&A down on the, on the platform below and the guy who was hosting it said, oh, can you come and answer some questions? So I'm like, yeah, sure. So I just jumped down, landed on my left leg, which is my bad leg, and my knee twanged and, and I, I nearly fell over and these two young girls in the front row saw it. It was pretty innocuous. But they saw it they're like, oh, my God, we thought you were going to fall over and break your leg. <laughs> so, yeah, it can lead to some dumb decisions, but I think mostly it's, it's been a help rather than a hindrance. I just want to go back to that employment scenario you talked to ABC, but what are those challenges you find and around – the employment side of things with the the disability, with the challenges you've had, just to give people a context of that. So I find employment for people with disability is improving in Australia, but it's very much aimed at the employer and how good they look if they employ people with disability rather than aimed at the, the employee and how we can help this person. Probably the best practical example of that, that ability for people with disability to get jobs is told through a group that I've recently become involved with called Chemism. Chemism is a platform that pairs people with disability with able-bodied Australian entrepreneurs who try and help them find self-employment because a lot of people in 
in the situation of acquired disability, they know what they they used to be able to do, but can't see where they can add value these days. So the guy that started Chemism is a guy named Eugene Chong. Eugene had just finished industrial design at university and he had a pretty high-level job at Freedom Furniture, designing furniture, and then he had a stroke and was a bit like me, had pretty severe acquired brain damage, and he tried getting a few jobs after he got back on his feet and he was offered jobs unpacking boxes and doing data entry and he thought, I've got more value to add to the world than just data entry and packing boxes. So he started this thing called chemism. So the the idea is the person with disability gets in touch with chemism and says, I want to try marketing, digital media, sales, whatever it is they want to try as a self-employment option. Chemism has a huge, huge log of business professionals in different fields. So if you... Okay, for example, Everyday Greatness. My producer and I were struggling getting promotion because it was it's basically a two-man team and neither of us have any marketing credentials or background. So it consists of the odd Facebook post and, you know, a really rare newsletter on MailChimp. So I got in touch with Chemism and said, we need help with our digital marketing. So Chemism introduced us to uh, a group called Marketing Temps and they, in turn, introduced us to the group I mentioned earlier, FASA Digital, who are a digital marketing agency. And they're now doing all of our promotion work for everyday greatness. Numbers are going through the roof and it's gaining a lot more, I hate the term, but it's gaining a lot, lot more. It's still not where it should be in Australia. It is getting better, but it's yeah, it's still a bit too much focused on the employer, whereas it should be focused on the person with disability and the value they can bring to a particular role. Yeah, thanks for sharing, mate. Great insight from a man with lived experience. What does the next 10 years hold for Barnes? <laughs> Someone asked me this the other day, and whether I, if, if I hadn't had a stroke or got diabetes or lost my first wife, I'm 42, mate. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. My body wouldn't cope with you know, ski trips to Aspen or jumping off, off the Grand Canyon. Like, I'm, I'm really happy. I'm probably going to sound like an, an old father now, but... I'm so happy just spending time with my family, with Julia, my wife, Imogen, my stepdaughter, and our dog, Walter. I can't think of anything I'd rather do. So the next 10 years, for me, will be exactly the same as tonight will be, just sitting around, chatting, enjoying each other's company. Sounds like a wonderful 10 years, mate. What's the, what or who has had the greatest impact on your leadership journey to date? Specifically, leadership journey would be my father. So my father's been in advertising his whole life quite successfully, but he's never been a CEO or a you know CFO or a real top-line leader. And I always used to think that if I could take – he's a really good man. He's a really nice you know, human being and he's, a, he's an old-school gentleman. And I thought, what if I could take my dad's old-school gentlemanness and be ruthless and aggressive and take down the competition? I'd be the perfect leader. But – my dad has shown me that you don't need the titles and the, the highest salary and the best cars and the biggest houses to be a happy man. You just keep bringing those seeds of small goodness. If they pay off, that's awesome and good on you. But if they don't and you can get home and to a happy family who you've helped to support and bring up, then that, I think that is as much you need to know about leadership. Speaking of your dad and, and your wonderful parents, what, what do you remember them doing throughout your childhood that instilled this realness in you? You talk about real strength, real resilience. Turning up, it's probably a bit too simple to sound sexy enough to make a thing or a person successful, but they were always there. My mother actually said to me a couple of weeks ago, she said, now that I'm getting older, I look back on my life and I, she said, I, I used to regret that I didn't have any huge trophies or, or awards or charities or foundations. I've just sort of got by and I've had a good time and I've got some good mates. But she said there was a time when I thought that wasn't enough. But now looking back and watching you kids all grow up with your families, that is more than enough. So my mum has taught me literally that just being a good human being is enough. My dad, he's a bit more reserved emotionally, but he has shown me firsthand that just being a good man is enough to get ahead in life. 
And thinking about that and what your parents did for you, and again, you've got Julia there, your wonderful wife, and you've got Imogen. What sort of impact do you want to have for Imogen? What sort of example do you want to set for Imogen? I want to be the role model for Imogen that my father was for me. I just want to be a reliable human being. I just want to, as I said before, if if I say I'm going to be there, I'll be there. Funnily enough, Julia and I coached Imogen's netball team a couple of years ago, took them to the grand final and then retired. We're one for for one. (laughs) But that's, that's what I want to be for Imogen, just... Someone that's reliable can offer a, another word of, well, I don't want to say wisdom because I think it, I sound like a toolbox, but a different perspective on things than she currently has. So just be that voice of reason and try and get, try and get to appreciate things, good things that people do for her. So Imogen asked me to help her with a, a maths assignment not long ago. She got 21 out of 22. And I came home, she said, I got 21 out of 22 for that maths test. Maths assignment. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Good job. She goes, but I should have got 22. What did we do wrong? I was like, oh, we're going to change that point of view. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do, just shift that perspective from you know, getting disappointed about things to seeing the beauty in the world. Barnes, you talk a lot in your talks, in your keynotes, and through the conversation today about being proud of yourself and you are good enough. How are you proud of yourself? I'm proud of myself in that I haven't tried to dilute my message to please different people. I've just been the person I want to be the entire time, done what I think is right, and haven't veered from that to try and impress people. And for me, that it was a really unfulfilling way of operating when I was starting out my speaking because if you didn't have that real aggressive, overbearing, ruthless point of difference, People didn't give you the time of day. But nowadays in, in, the, in the society we live in, it's so competitive that if you're just a bit more relaxed and, and casual and proud of yourself, then that is now a point of difference. So I guess one of the proudest things I can say about myself is that I just am who I am and I haven't tried to change to fit in with different groups or people. And that makes me really happy that I now live in a household full of the same attitudes with my wife and my stepdaughter. Barnes, you talk about not having the X factor or, or you know, realising that you needed an X factor. For me, what you've just said is you're X factor, mate. You're a real person. You know, you don't bow to the, you know, whatever society is saying. You're just being that real human being. You're showing that through real strength, real resilience. That journey of life that you've been on, there's been a number of bumps in the road, but you've got back up literally consistently and you've moved forward, and you're an inspiration to certainly myself. I know you're a massive inspiration to your family, and you're a massive inspiration to many people that you come in contact with, mate. So I, for one, massive appreciation for you coming on and being a guest on the Culture of Things podcast, mate. I appreciate you very much. Thanks so much, Brendan. It's a pleasure being here. Really nice having a chat. Thanks. Absolute pleasure. The strength and resilience of Barnes's mind has helped him overcome the many matters he's been dealt. Barnes is an everyday Joe Bag of Donuts who has everything he needs inside him right now. He's on a journey to inspire others in the world to realize the same thing. If there is an X factor which separates the great leaders from the ordinary, it's that they are genuine and real. They don't live with excuses. They don't build a chip on their shoulders. They know they have full control of what they do day to day. And they know it's the accumulation of their daily actions that makes the difference between living an ordinary life and living one that inspires others. These were my three key takeaways from a conversation with Barnaby. My first key takeaway, leaders do their best all the time. They will always give 100% in everything they do. No excuses. It's never a when I feel like it, I'll do my best. When they know they've given their best, they'll always be proud of themselves. Even if they don't win, or achieve what they set out to achieve. Leaders know that doing their best all the time is good enough. My second key takeaway, leaders do the small things well. It's these small everyday things that create habits. It's these habits repeated consistently that lead to big things being done well. Whether it's picking up a paperclip from a bowl and putting it into a jar, 
or clenching your bum cheeks together to help build a foundation of stability. Leaders know that the small things done well lay the foundation for greater success. My third key takeaway, leaders forgive. They don't hold grudges or live with regret. Hearing Barnes's story, you may think he has every right to hold a grudge or regret some of the decisions he's made. Not Barnes. He's built the strength and resilience to own his life and live with the cards he's been dealt. And he's making the most of it every single day. He's been able to do this because he is a leader who forgives. So in summary, my three key takeaways were leaders do their best all the time. Leaders do the small things well. Leaders forgive. If you want to talk culture, leadership or teamwork, or have any questions or feedback about the episode, contact me on theculturethings.com or via our socials. Thanks for joining me. And remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thank you for listening to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. Please visit brendanrogers.com.au to access the show notes. If you love the Culture of Things podcast, please subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts. And remember, a healthy culture is your competitive advantage.